For everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up, Season 2, Episode 39 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami, our celebration of 20,000 downloads and one year with Buzzsprout, starts now. Today on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. Quite frankly, Surfing the NASH Tsunami is the only steady, consistent data delivery mechanism for this field. It surplants congresses, journal articles, local meetings, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're very broad-based. I mean, we have Louise, who brings an incredible experience with her from her vantage point in a different part of the world, and there's your vantage point and what you bring to the table, there's my piece, and then all the guests that we have that come on. That patient perspective is fundamental, particularly in a disease where the fatty liver is part of a much wider phenotype and where in the vast majority of cases, people who've got fatty liver will not die of their liver disease. You said earlier, for every pound that you spend looking for liver disease, it's a pound that you're not spending on another disease. The counter argument to that is for every pound you spend looking for liver disease, you will find high-risk diabetics, or cardiac disease, so many other ways. That pound could come back as a preventative cost. That pound is well invested in my book. <laughs> I have to tell you something funny. The first conversation we did in this anniversary series was with Donna Cryer. And when I asked Donna what she wanted to see in the next year that we haven't covered yet, her answer was payers. To which I said, Naeem talks to me about that all the time. We need to get everyone on board and show them the real impact of this disease and how they can be actually saving money if they implement the screening strategies and then how they can actually find the patients that need to be treated immediately, how to triage patients. I think they would be actually pleased to know that at the end of the day, you are saving money with lifestyle interventions and these interventions will save lives and they'll be cost-effective for sure. And we have the cost-effectiveness analysis with Marzenoridine and myself that we publish in Gastroenterology showing that an intensive lifestyle intervention is cost-effective uh, if you start screening diabetics who are middle-aged. Two weeks ago, surfing the Nash tsunami passed 20,000 downloads with Buzzsprout. That same week, we celebrated the beginning of our second year on Buzzsprout. To honor the occasion, some of our more frequent guest surfers joined us to review the past year and discuss our future. Listen as Louise Campbell and Roger Green interview podcast co-founder Dr. Stephen Harrison, Global Liver Institute founder and CEO, Donna Cryer, Professors Jörn Schottenberg and Ian Rowe, and Dr. Naeem Alkhori about these topics and more, this week on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. 16 months ago. Stephen Harrison and I decided to do a podcast series of maybe four to six episodes to educate NASH drug developers, trial sites, and investors that COVID-19 did not mean all trials needed to shut down completely. We had no clue what we were doing, <laughs> really no clue. And in fact, after 12 episodes, we changed podcasters and engineers to get better control of our content and went to Buzzsprout, where we are today. Well, we still have a lot to learn, but we've created roughly 70 hours of original content, covered major medical meetings, had 20,000 pieces of content downloaded by stakeholders in 76 countries over the past year, and I could go on, but you get the point. Since the 20,000 download and one-year Buzzsprout milestones came on the same week, we thought it would be good to sit with some of our regular surfers, review favorite moments, and ponder what surfing the next tsunami has meant and can come to mean looking to the future. 
I take full responsibility for editing the various conversations. This organizes loosely into seven sections. One, in the beginning. The regulars, Stephen Harrison, Louise Campbell, and me, discussing how we started and a little bit about what we've learned. Two, introductions. Saying hello to the four other panelists who've joined us this week. Naeem Alcori, Donna Cryer, Ian Rowe, and Jorn Schottenberg. Three, best to date. One moment or element each of us has liked during the last 16 months podcasts. Four, the year ahead. A concept each of us would like to integrate into the podcast over the coming year. Five, bringing value. A couple of volunteered thoughts about where Surfing Nash brings value to the fatty liver community. Six, a close from the surfers. Conversation between Stephen, Louise, and me about what we see ahead for Surfing the Nash Tsunami and the larger Surfing Nash franchise. Seven, conclusions. Everyone else gets to say see you later. Our voice artist, Grace, will segue between sections. Enjoy. Section one, in the beginning. I tell my version of the story all the time, but in your recollection, how did we come to start this? Wow, that that's a good question. So I guess we just had a conversation one day, right, about needing to get information out relative to steatohepatitis and NASH and NAFLD in general in an era where meetings weren't happening. And I think that's actually how it started, wasn't it, Roger? We were lamenting the fact that meetings were pushed off and like NASH tag, right? Pretty close. I mean, to my recollection, my recollection is that we were lamenting about that. And while we were crying in our figurative beers, because nobody was drinking and we were on video and it was 11 o'clock in the morning or something, you also got to the challenges that developers and investors were having, believing that anyone could do a clinical trial while all this was going on. That's right. Yeah. So that whole other piece of everything was shutting down and we were staying open and there was a way to make it happen and a way to make it work. Why is everybody shutting down research when this is exactly the patient population that needs to be treated and treated aggressively so that if they do get infected with COVID, they have a potentially better outcome. And so, yeah, that was part of it as well. It was like, how do we have a voice of reason in all of this? And so let's start a podcast. Let's talk about COVID. Let's talk about COVID and liver disease, particularly fatty liver. And let's talk about clinical trials and and how to continue to enroll and what the challenges are relative to enrolling in the, in the middle of a pandemic. So do you remember the first letter we ever got? It was from a patient. Yeah, we talked about that. And a complete surprise, because it wasn't what we expected, right? It was first week, and it was from a patient who wanted to know, A, was he going to die? And B, could anything be done to help him? That was the thrust of it. I remember looking at each other over a video call and saying, gee, that's different. You got really excited. Yeah, there was that excitement for sure. And, And then as we began to get feedback from unusual places, right? I mean, from different countries, from different people that we didn't think necessarily would listen to the podcast. And here we were getting feedback that uh, that our message was reaching venues and places of the world that we never thought we would go. It just kind of empowered us to continue to drive on. And obviously now we talk about a lot more than just COVID and a lot more than just clinical trials. And I think that is because of the feedback we've received that, quite frankly, surfing the Nash tsunami is the only steady, consistent 
consistent data delivery mechanism for this field. It supplants Congresses, journal articles, local meetings, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're very broad-based. I mean, we have Louise, who brings an incredible experience with her from her vantage point and a different part of the world, and there's your vantage point and what you bring to the table. There's my piece, and then all the guests that we have that come on from patient advocates to other key opinion leaders to pharma representatives, sponsors, people that are experts in non-invasive testing strategies, both physicians and sponsor side of the house. We could go on and on. I mean, it has really morphed into a complete repository for fatty liver disease information delivery. I think that's fair. So I'm going to hold you to there because you started about when you started the podcast, but your history goes back before the podcast. So how did you two, from different backgrounds in the field, hook up in the first place to even be connected to take to take on such a challenge and to develop uh, such a 20,000 downloads just from Buzzsprout is an amazing achievement for um, for what you started. How did you two even get together to be in that zone? So when Michael and Vlad first came up with the idea for NASHTAG, their stroke of brilliance was putting it in Utah. Because when I was invited to go speak at NASHTAG 2019, I knew nothing about Nash. I knew Yasmin from other work I had done in Ultra Orphan with a couple of clients she liked. But she told me it was a cool meeting and I'd never skied Utah before. So I figured, great, I'll go ski Utah. That that can't be a problem. And then I started learning, reading about Nash and commercialization concepts and came to the conclusion, this story you have heard a bunch, that a lot of what the development community or the commercial people in the development community believe probably wasn't right. So I decided it would be a nice idea to give a 20-minute talk educating people a little bit on the meaning of some of the things that they were saying, why this wasn't the statin market, why you couldn't save an economy $1.1 trillion in liver transplants when there weren't enough livers to spend 10% of that money. A couple other things. And um, the talk was received in a really interesting way. Nobody said anything. Nobody whispered. Nobody looked at their cell phones. And this was at a quarter of eight in Utah. That is a quarter of 10 in the east on the first night of the conference. Yasmin calls me two days later and says, hey, Stephen Harrison wants to talk to you. He thinks there should be something you guys can do together. And I guess we just started talking. How am I doing? Yeah, that's spot on. Our first interaction, Louise, was at NASHTAG. And it was an introduction made by Yasmin. And it opened my eye to a completely different part of this world of fatty liver that I didn't have any experience with or focus on or understanding of. So that's been a very awesome partnership in the sense that he's educated me and we've been able to educate each other about our little particular nuances of liver disease. So I guess it was a couple years prior to starting the podcast, right? That, was, that was 19. And uh, then I came back in 20. And then we started the podcast after that. And, and Stephen, I have to tell you, frankly, I think it's good to hear you've benefited in the way you should describe. I think I've benefited more. I kind of got to a point in my life where I was tired of what I was doing and didn't know what I wanted to do next. And these issues I thought were really interesting. And it's clear to me this podcast is having impact, if only because people tell us, but then they tell us specifically why and how. And to get involved with an important disease that people didn't understand nearly well enough um, has been amazingly reinvigorating and uplifting for me to do. And I I thank both of you guys, and I thank actually the whole community for uh, giving me space to have fun and be productive. Yeah, I, I think we're so much better because Louise came on and joined us and has been a. Shut up, just saying that. <laughs> 
obviously we had a different group that we started out with, Roger. I mean, it was me and you and Yasmin and Peter, and then it's evolved, if you will. And having Louise, I, I don't even know how, how did we, how, how did you come about getting on the podcast? I can't even remember that. I'm sure. My recollection was that I tweeted, I put something on LinkedIn and Roger came back to me on it. And then we touched base, didn't we? Uh, From one recollection, we had a conversation. He said, I like your viewpoint on some of these things. And I I, I will be quite honest. I don't necessarily toe the party political line. I'm not a political natured nurse. There's a reason I chose to stay in direct patient care because I've always, in 99% of the cases, to move up in a health structure, you have to follow a certain political line and not necessarily rock the boat too often. And I can be a rocker of a boat. I think we had a comment in one of the sledge about the naffled versus maffled. And sometimes you just have to take a sledgehammer to something. Now that can be very productive, but shake a few feathers. But to be fair, I only have one life. I only have one career. And actually, I do view that sometimes it's not worth wasting a lot of time and effort when you need to get a message home that saves people's lives an awful lot earlier. And I don't apologise for that. And I think that's where Roger and I came in. And I will, I'm not necessarily, I'm certainly not right all of the time, but I will learn all of the time. And putting a viewpoint... did I hear a female say she wasn't right all the time? You did. You did. (laughs) (laughs) And you heard a female nurse (laughs) leader tell you they weren't right all of the time and I think I'm human but I will learn all of the time and I will digest that information and I will put it into the context but what we bring is a more practical patient but I'm not a patient I've been lucky never to have to be to this day a patient and I choose not to be but I will fight for people's right not to be a patient and know their health and I think that's where I love what you guys do and the people who come to this podcast. So I just fell into it, and I'm a bit of a fatalist on that. The contest at right time, right place, right comment. And Roger and I just hooked up, and we can talk football forever. We could do a podcast just on football. There's no doubt. (laughs) Although although I have to tell you, we really did a disservice to Jorn and to uh, Luis today because we scheduled their call for the time when Liverpool was playing Mainz. And Mainz being, you know, Jorn's home team and Liverpool obviously being Luis's. Which I didn't notice. (laughs) Neither one of them could watch the match because they had to do this interview. Mm. So, Stephen, score score one for the Americans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But so I think, Luis, that's probably righter even than you realize because when we started talking, I thought, bringing Louise on the podcast would be a great idea, but I did not know when. And then three hours before our fourth episode, I got a phone call from Yasmin that the folks she was working for at that point in time felt that going out and giving opinions on a weekly basis was not regulatorily something that they thought she should be doing. And if I remember correctly, Peter couldn't make it that week either for a reason. And and I've always tried to have at least three people on the podcast, not that Stephen and I couldn't fill an hour and a half, but this isn't the right thing to do. And Louise was available. And then the next week you weren't on. We originally thought we'd have you on. The week after that was Naffled and Naffled with Quentin, and for that you weren't on. And then you came back after that, and that was it. And you stuck with me now, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, lucky us. It works out really really well. I think it's a great balance. Section 2. Introducing today's surfers. Jörn Schottenberg. 
Louise and I are fortunate to be joined by Jorn Schottenberg, who's we were just agreeing, is hardly a guest of the podcast at this point, virtually semi-regular with us, I guess, nine, eight or nine times at this point. I believe you are the single most frequent person who's never been a regular in terms of podcast appearances. So thank you for that and welcome. So what I'm trying to remember is how you first engaged or how we engaged with you in the first place. Thanks, Roger. And it's really a great honor to be here and, and, and be talking to you. And I enjoy the podcast tremendously. I think I came across it in the first place when I was looking for some information related to the complete response letter that was, I guess, was published about a year ago in, in regards to the phase three beticolic acid study. And, and, uh, and I found something where Stephen Harrison commented with some other folks on what he thought was going on there and, and how that could shape the field. And when I realized it was an entire podcast episode, I went back and, and listened to that while I was one of my evening runs. And it was that time, it, it's about the right length to, to take it on a, on a run. And I think that's when I started to follow the podcast. So that's interesting because that brought us to several people's attention, I think. And then we reached out to you about joining us for the easel coverage last year, which is, I believe the first time you're with us. We're going over who to bring to easel and, and we wanted folks from Europe who had interesting points of view. You were one of the first two people Stephen mentioned, and he then described you as the nicest guy in hepatology. So, um, therefore, we figured you'd say yes. Uh, <laughs> Ian Rowe. So, Louise and I are here with our good friend Ian Rowe. Ian, happy Friday. How are you today? Uh, very good, thank you. Looking forward to a few days off. Um, thanks for joining us. As you know, we're celebrating our 20,000th download with Buzzsprout and also our one year of being with Buzzsprout, but I think the 20,000 downloads is a more important number. And just trying to visit back with some of our favorite co-surfers, as it were, you being one of them. What do you recall about how we all connected up in the first place? Well, so I saw the launch of the podcast, I think, on Twitter somewhere. And it sort of piqued my interest. I thought, I wonder what that's all about. And I listened to the first couple of episodes and I thought there might be other other ways of looking at the problem. And I think that there are many ways in which we might address, you know, how we prevent progressive liver disease in people who've got who've got fatty liver. So I then reached out to you using LinkedIn on the on one of the notice boards and we linked up that way. So that was actually the second thing that happened. I could tell you what the first one was. I think I mentioned it to you at the time. Louise, you may recall that. It was right after the um, OCA CRL and out on Twitter. And some guy I've never heard of in Leeds posted notes saying, can't wait to see what the hep die people think of this. That was you. And then we started doing a little research. And then it turned out you had reached out to us. And I said, oh, gosh, what a coincidence. How delightful. At that point in time, we didn't have a lot of people talking about us out there. So anybody who was reputable and was willing to, of his own volition, talk about how interesting we were. I figured, you know, there's a social science data point that says that men decide how intelligent women are after their first date by how much they let the man talk. So by that standard, <laughs> if you were smart enough to put us up on Twitter, obviously you were a smart guy, and it turns out you are, and it's worked out really well from there. And he gave um, you the title of reputable, so that's really impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that just showed that, I, well, A, that I'd been, been listening, but also that but there was definitely a need for the community at large to hear some of the thoughts about the big things that were happening, and the, the CRL was probably the biggest thing that happened other than COVID during... Um, um, the first part of 2020, at least, and, and trying to understand a bit about the background or what the perceived background was to that decision making, I thought would be really interesting. And, and the episode that followed that was an excellent discussion about the issues that were raised. And I think because I'd seen, I'd seen value in what I was hearing, I thought it was worth other people perhaps hearing that too. So thank you for that. Global Liver Institute President and CEO, Donna Cryer. 
At the risk of being a little bit corny, right now we have three quarters of the band. Louise and I are here with Donna. Hey, Donna, it's been a while. Yes, maybe hours or something. <laughs> By the time this airs, you'll, you'll get the point. But Donna and I did a re-record of her highly successful but auditorily challenged emceeing of the episode while I was away last week. And then I spent the last day trying to patch her voice in with all these other things. And by now, you all know how badly or how well it turned out. But we'll that was see fun. how it works. It's important for us to challenge ourselves. You know, me on the hosting, you on the digital editing. I mean, when you stop learning, you stop growing. That's a very upbeat way of putting the thing I always say, which is that as you get older, when you're losing 10,000 brain cells an hour, you got to keep your mind pried open. But but they both get to the same place, which you got to learn something new. Hey, Louise, how are you this evening? I'm very well. I've just got in from work. So I'm rushing in to check in with Donna and see what she's been up to. She's been giving jabs all day at the XL. Yes, we've moved to Westfield now, which is the Olympic Park shopping centre. So a bigger footfall of the demographic that we want, obviously, which is the younger generation, which is great news. And they're rocking up. They're desperate for a second jab, but coming too early for that. Now Louise gets to do something no one in the U.S. does anymore, which is say no to somebody who's asking for a shot. <laughs> so, but basically, here's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to talk a little bit, Donna, about how you got started with this podcast and kind of you, you've played three or four different roles over the life of it. You went from guest to band member to guest to MC. Of all the people who are not on the podcast, I would say you are brought up more during episodes than anybody else's. <laughs> I, I like to be provocative. So thank you for the feedback that I've been successful. I think I remember how we engaged this in the first place, but what do you recall? Dr. Harrison brought up the idea of participating. I'm so excited that I've, I've had the opportunity to work outside this with original members like Peter Traber as well. And like all good friendships, it's hard to imagine a time or a world before I was part of the podcast. And it's hard to recount, even though it's been just one year since launch. Yes. Slightly more, but yeah. So this is what I recall. I recall Louise suggesting that maybe we should do an episode about International Nash Day. That was right at the beginning of her time. And I said, gee, I'm not sure I know people who are involved with that. And Stephen said, well, well, why don't you call Donna? And that was about what happened. So all three of us were in different ways, part of the process by which she joined us. I like to extend the mythology that all roads lead to Donna Cryer. Name Alcuri. Happy anniversary, I guess. Congratulations to you. Thank you, and thanks for being such a big part of it. I'm trying to remember, where did we find each other first? It was Stephen. He was supposed to do something, and then he got pulled away, and he suggested that I cover, and I'm like, okay, let's do this. That was the first time. Stephen, explained to me why you were an appropriate person to do that. Actually, for a while there, you were kind of Stephen's understudy. Whenever there was no Stephen, you were there. And then, obviously, you've emerged on your own. You've part of episode Stephen is on. There have been times we haven't even thought about getting Stephen, but you were available. So it's all been good. It's been a nice journey. I told you many people now, they just know me from the surfing the Nash tsunami. That, it means that people are listening. It, yeah, it does. And for me, being on this podcast has been a big hit with my kids. <laughs> How old are your children and why do you submit them to this? I know. You know, they, they don't listen to the Nash tsunami podcast in all transparency, but they listen to a podcast. And when I told them I'm doing one, they're like, what? Like, okay, I guess you're a celebrity, dad. I'm like, yeah, I'm happy. yeah. So, uh, yeah, but they, they've listened to it, you know, just bits and pieces. So they can believe me that I was on a podcast. They got a kick out of it. <laughs> so this has been really good for me to, to be a cool dad, I guess. We are delighted to help you be a cool dad. Section three. Best to date. 
So, so Stephen, I have a question for you. We've been doing this a year and a half now. What's your favorite moment? Can you think of one that you really like particularly well? I don't know if I have a favorite moment. I have very fond memories of several different podcasts. I remember having a bit of a discussion. I wouldn't call it necessarily heated, but a memorable discussion with Peter Traber, which I thought was very good. I love hearing all the things that our guests do that we don't know that they do. You know, so Mason Nareden being a very good basketball player, you know, Naeem Al-Khori and his instrument that he plays, you know, all those different stories that people come on and tell us. That's very fun to listen to. I always love it when Donna comes on because I, I learned so much from Donna and all her insight, all of her expertise, all of her wisdom of being on Capitol Hill and, and what that means from a political perspective and insight from a patient perspective that she brings to the table. Her energy and her passion that she has for the Global Liver Institute. There's just so many different episodes we've done that, that I fondly remember. I can't put my finger on one particular one that I like more than the other, though. So Louise clearly did. And ironically, Louise and it was Jorn, right, who had the same moment? Yeah, yeah, they both. They both, which was the moment Donna made sure Vlad understood that it didn't matter why she died. If she was dead, she was dead. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, again, it's a it's a Donna moment, right? It's a Donna moment. Well, I, I, have, I have another Donna moment, which she knows I like a lot better than she does. Which was Mike Charlton asking on one of the Nash Tech episodes that you were not on, who's going to be the Larry Kramer of Nash? Right, right. <laughs> and, and Donna, she, she got comfortable with it after I, she and I had a long talk about who Larry Kramer was to me and how that was different than who Larry Kramer was to others. And I've, I've asked Mazin actually to go try to find what I think she needs, and he said he's on it, so we'll see what happens. Frankly, I think the Larry Kramer of Nash has to be from LA. Virtually has to be, for a whole variety of reasons. But he knows a lot of those people, so maybe we can make that work. I want to say my favorite moment was probably the post-FDA webinar and listening to where Kitty Yale was aligned with the academics and where she wasn't. We don't get that many commercial people to come on and we don't get that many commercial people to come on in a moment where there's that much inflection. I, I just thought it was great. She was great. She's Scottish. She's going to tell it to you just like it is, right? I mean... <laughs> So that's okay. So, so I like that moment. Now you just need an Irish one to come on, and that one will be a little headstrong and probably try to start a fight, but that's okay. Well, I so, know a perfect Irish physician, and she's she is headstrong, but I don't think she'll start a fight. No? Yeah. But if, I, if you one tell thing us... I've learned, one thing I've learned about folks from the UK is if you look at the, the English, the Scottish, and the Irish as a military guy, the Irish always want to be on the front line. Just put me in the fight. Throw me in there. And then, you know, if you want to really rough somebody up, you then send the Scots in, right? And then and then the uh, the English come in afterwards and, uh, and kind of just secure the territory and plant the flag, right? While smoking their, <laughs> while smoking their pipes? I'm yeah. going to stay... Comp- I'm, I'm going to... I've got a long uh, half. I've got a very strong Irish side in our family. With a name like Campbell, I've obviously got a very good Scottish side in the family. So I play neutral territory as an English person should. (laughs) (laughs) And plant the flag. (laughs) So so Louise, I'm laughing because one of the questions I was going to ask you while we had Jorn with us was, what was your favorite Jorn Schottenberg moment of the past year? Except that I knew that the answer was going to be talking about the German media right before Christmas. So you actually beat me to the punch. Uh, you know me so well after all this. We, we've been hanging out a bunch, haven't we? Best thing you've been part of on this podcast since you joined it? I liked the opportunity to defend patient advocacy from comments at Nashtag since I couldn't go and pull people off the stage. Um, so <laughs> I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, uh, or 
popcorn on them at the chateau. I, I I appreciate that opportunity. That was my favorite. That was my favorite moment. Louise and I have both observed that getting to watch your face, even though we don't do video just here, say the same thing. while that moment up. was going on, we've commented on it several times between us uh, subsequently. So, Jorn, what what's your favorite moment uh, on the podcast over the past year? Yeah, yeah, I was trying to think. I wouldn't single out a single moment. I love the ones you bring in new people because, uh, of course, of your uh, inquiries about the special moments. So when I learned that my respected colleague and good friend Mezen uh, Nureddin was a great basketball player, I, I enjoyed that. You know, I like to see the personal sides. That's really your strength in pulling people together and getting them to uh, disclose something to a broader public here that hasn't been known. Those are the highlights. Well, Jorn, by the way, I also know Donna Cryer's favorite Jorn Schottenberg moment because she talked about it last week when she was hosting the podcast, which was the realization that you came to that you were having a hard time communicating to some of your Turkish patients about Nash because you only had German language literature. I think that might be actually Donna's favorite moment of all the podcasts so far, even surpassing Louise's favorite Donna moment, which is when she explained to Vlad Ratsu that once you're dead, you're dead. It doesn't matter what you die of. You were around for that one also, I believe. You know, and I still have that. In the aftermath, Donna sent me, uh, I think it was Arabic information sheet, and I used that five or six times since then. So I really think this is how the podcast connects and brings people together. Thank you. Of everything you've heard with this podcast in the past year, what's the one thing you liked best or thought was most important or both? I'm going to go back to Donna and the I was listening to the easel wrap-up episode with Donna and Vlad Ratsu when they were talking about <laughs> Louise is laughing because she knows what I'm going to say but they were talking I'm about I'm laughing because this is my best episode ever every time because I can see <laughs> Donna's face and you can you've just referenced Donna's face and we discussed that with Donna the other day it has been my funniest moment for a long time <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 this is that. why Louise is laughing. This comes up over and over again in different contexts. But yes, go ahead. But it, but it, it's it's so important because you know Vlad was Vlad was very clear that he was a hepatologist focused on treating patients' liver disease. And Donna said, "It doesn't matter why I'm dead. I'm dead." And that patient perspective is fundamental, particularly in a disease where the fatty liver is part of a much wider phenotype, and where in the vast majority of cases, people who've got fatty liver will not die of their liver disease, and we have to be sure that when we're making the diagnosis, we're going to have a positive impact on the patient. And, you know, like moments in time, but I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I was listening to that, sitting at my kitchen table, hoping that the children had gone to sleep upstairs. It was remarkable because it, it really clicked and it highlights the, the the mindset of hepatology in general. You know, this is a liver disease, I must treat the liver disease. But it shows what's really important to the patients and that is, you know, what we do has to have a benefit to them. Following on from that and just referring to what you said earlier, for every pound that you spend looking for liver disease, it's a pound that you're not spending on another disease. The counter argument to that is for every pound you spend looking for liver disease, you will find your high-risk diabetics of developing type 2 diabetes, of cardiac disease. For that pound could come back in so many other ways as a preventative cost. So that pound is well invested in my book. <laughs> so it's interesting you should say that because I don't think I'm getting as much purchase from some of the academic KOLs as I would hope on your point. I think there's a strong argument to be made 
and Mazda has shown the cost-effectiveness numbers on this, on the value of uh, testing every T2D. Part of my belief about that is that endocrinologists could treat their diabetic patients better if they knew which ones had fatty liver and which ones had NAFL versus NASH versus no liver involvement. That you can actually treat the diabetes with a more holistic point of view of what you're trying to achieve if you know the answer to that question. And understand that insulin sensitization has a lot to do with why NAFL would become NASH or not. Don't worry about the hepatologist for a minute. Right now, the endo thinks that she or he is treating the overall patient. But I've been told in the States that if you take a look at the testing that endocrinologists order, they order up a whole bunch of liver enzymes, which I think they're probably called liver function tests, but they don't order up a bunch of NASH tests, not a lot of FIB4 or any of that stuff. And I just can't help but believe, and this is this is from the Ian Rowe School, how do you look at things? Certainly Louise's as well, that if we were to take a look at the effect of doing those tests on those patients in terms of what happened to their cardiovascular rates and frankly, just how much cardiovascular treatment they got and whether it affected the diabetes drugs they were on, you'd probably find that if people did that at the right time, you could uh, meaningfully change care tomorrow. I think there's probably some truth to that. Um, it, it, gets, it takes us into what I think is a quite a difficult space about understanding what the indication for a treatment in a patient who's got NASH is going to be and how much of that relates to liver disease and how much it relates to the, the metabolic multimorbidity. And, and I guess as, as time goes on, we'll begin to understand that a bit more as the treatments that we that we get to see in the clinic have more and more pluripotent effects, not only treating the liver disease, but also having significant benefits on the cardiometabolic phenotypes. Question. The historic payer perspective in the U.S. at least has been, I've got great diabetes drugs, I've got great statins, I've got great cardiovascular drugs. All I really want to know is what you do for the liver. Uh, I've got more efficient ways to manage pleiotropic effects or the potent issues. The second school of thought goes, if I can do this with fewer drugs, better. And if the drugs I use have pleiotropic effects, it probably means this is a more holistic solution than simply shooting at numbers. A, which do you believe is more likely to be correct? And B, how do you think treatment is likely to evolve given that human behavior and human systems don't always do the right thing? So... I don't know the answer to your first question, which is correct. The former is much more likely because the drugs that people are using at the moment have meaningful clinical outcomes associated with them, particularly. So if you take the GLP-1s or SGLT-2s for management of diabetes, then you know the, the evidence tells us that they will reduce cardiovascular risk and the SGLT-2s, then they'll reduce the risk of nephropathy and in the appropriate context will improve heart failure. So I think for for drugs that target liver disease to be prescribed for their other benefits, then we're going to have to see clear evidence of outcome benefits associated with those additional effects. Inevitably, that's going to take time and significant investment. I think that's one of the big open questions about whether those studies will be done. And I don't know the answer to that. I think it would be a disservice to our patients if they weren't done, if we've got a drug that is good for liver disease and looks like it'll be good for other things too. I think that brings us back to the argument at the beginning. Roger and I both commented following Donna Cryer that the research is driven by the drug company to answer the specific question that they want rather than the patient need. That we should, as professionals in any form of healthcare, we should be answering the questions that are the most pertinent questions to the patient. I think you've just highlighted an extremely valuable area where actually highlighting what would be the best opportunity for the patient or the person with the condition because a lot of these people have never been diagnosed yet and may not be diagnosed until late. I agreed with you that I thought it was going to be the former because I think the former is one that we currently probably use most and we are seeing an exponential rise in end-stage liver disease being presented late, liver cancer. So it would support that it's not necessarily helping liver disease within those populations. So, you know, one of the highlights for me was actually that you featured my music 
in one of your episodes. You know, I played this instrument called oud, which is kind of like a Middle Eastern guitar. Many people approach me about that and they're like, oh, we love this, you know, and actually I had a gathering of physicians in my house. That was just a year ago or so, and they all wanted to hear the instrument. So that was just immediately before COVID, I would say probably a couple of months before. So yeah, that was nice. And, you know, this is uh, sentimental for me because it's kind of like from my country, from Syria, and my country is not doing well. So this was nice that you featured this. So I appreciate it. Also, I've been a guest with different guests also that I value as friends and we've had very nice discussions. I, I like the interactions we have. I mean, sometimes we have debates and we all uh, know each other. We know our papers and publications and, you know, you can get a sense what people believe. And I think sometimes it's nice to have these discussions and we, we're all open-minded. I change my perspective when I hear from other experts and I think we're all learning from each other. And this is what I find most valuable uh, in the podcast. You know, this is how science works. We say things and we learn new things and then we change what we said and we're proud of it. And I think this is something that we're struggling with now as a country in the United States that everyone has an opinion now and everyone reads something on Facebook and then if we change what we uh, preach after a new data is being generated, uh, people say that what well, you didn't give us the accurate information, but this is science. And this is what I value the most about the podcast that I feel like we do it to educate, but also we learn from each other and this brainstorming is very helpful. One thing I liked also is the easel coverage. I really felt like this is taking the podcast to a whole new level. I mean, I felt like if you didn't have a chance to actually listen to the sessions during easel because of the timing difference and you got really a nice summary of the meeting from experts in the field that also provided their own perspective and a little bit of background. So I think that was really well uh, received and I hope we continue to do this for ASLD and easel. Section four, the year ahead. The thing you really want the podcast to do in the next year that you haven't seen yet. I'd love to talk to payers. I'd love to have that conversation on the podcast. What do they need to know? What are they going to do about this? How are they, how are they being a part of the solution? You know, Naeem asks all the time about that, and he's absolutely right. I have to tell you something funny. The first conversation we did in this anniversary series was with Donna Cryer. And when I asked Donna what she wanted to see in the next year that we haven't covered yet, her answer was payers, to which I said, Naeem talks to me about that all the time. I guess I got to get to it now. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I mean, we need to get all these moving pieces and we need to get everyone on board and show them the real impact of this disease and how they can be actually saving money if they implement uh, screening strategies and then how they can actually find the patients that need to be treated immediately, how to triage patients. I think they would be actually pleased to know that for, for most people, lifestyle interventions and being more active is what it takes initially and if you catch the disease early, that's all you have to do. And then for the people that have advanced disease that you are preventing progression to cirrhosis, liver cancer, liver transplantation. So at the end of the day, you are saving money. And this is a disease that's everywhere, right? So you can't just move the patient to the next insurance company and say, well, maybe I won't be responsible for these lives in two years or three years because you're going to get newer patients coming from other insurance providers. So we need to just take responsibility and uh, start having these conversations. We've done some of the work looking at diabetics and do simple tests like the FIP4 and potentially FibroScan. You're looking at probably 10% of uh, individuals that need to be seen by specialists and potentially be considered for pharmacologic treatment. Everyone else could be managed with lifestyle interventions, and these interventions will save lives and they'll be cost-effective for sure. We have the cost-effectiveness analysis with Mazen Nuruddin and myself that we publish in Gastroenterology showing that an intensive lifestyle intervention is 
cost-effective uh, if you start screening diabetics who are middle-aged. Louise, let's do what you've been doing for this entire dialogue, which is take that conversation and walk it even further up the track. When Naeem says start with 10 that might need care and 90 that can be handled with lifestyle, does that start to get close to when you say treat them before there's a problem, or would you like to take it further back than that? It's two points. The first interaction I'm aware of with Naeem, and I think it was really funny, was an episode that I wasn't on and Naeem was on, and you came from wellness, and Roger's comment was, I know Louise will be listening to this and laughing, which I was, because when I listened to it, I was laughing, and it made me think, and right, and I, there's two points. The first interaction I'm aware of with Naeem, and I think it was really funny, was an episode that I wasn't on, and Naeem was on, and you came from wellness, and Roger's comment was, I know Louise will be listening to this and laughing, which I was, because when I listened to it, I was laughing, and it made me think, and right, and I obviously talk a lot about taking it further back. We come out of any education system in the world not knowing enough about how we look after ourselves, which actually then fuels a health pandemic in every area. Now, that's basic. That's lifestyle. That's well-being. That's fueled the pandemic currently with obesity. It's fueling a lot of disease around the world in lower middle-income countries. So it can be structured somewhere into everybody's education system. That would be arguably the biggest healthcare change for everybody that would make a difference. But I know somebody will say, well, we need the evidence for that. (laughs) I was drawn to an article that you liked in the BMJ recently on Twitter about simple steatosis fueling mortality and that all steatosis counts. And yes, of course, it was linked as a conclusion at the end to fibrosis, but it was all levels of fibrosis. So it, it was a, it's, a, it's a really pertinent article, I think, because I've linked it. I, I've certainly circulated it because doctors tell people simple fat doesn't matter and you've got fatty liver disease, don't worry. So if you've ever said that, get better educated. If you've ever been told that, actually get a second opinion. What would you like to see us do on this podcast next year that we've not done so far? That's a good question, Roger. I'd clearly like to see the podcast be carried forward. I mentioned it as being a substitute for personal contact during conferences. But I think it's taken over and it's fulfilled its own spot here in, in the Nash arena where exchange of ideas and, and constant thinking about new um, ways to present data is very important. So so clearly, I think with a weekly format, you're right there able to discuss what's happening. We, we see so much output. There's so many great guests on your podcast. I'd like to encourage you and your entire team. And again, congratulations to what you've been achieved. I mean, this is a celebration for you and Hep Dynamics team here because it's highly rated and it's highly listened to because you've done it right. And I think I'd like to see this carry on. This is not going to end with COVID, which is hopefully going to end at one point. And I think we'll just have to discuss the data, the emerging thoughts, and and hopefully at one point uh, how to implement therapies into clinical care. So first of all, no, I don't see any likelihood that we're going to be stopping the podcast in the near future for for the reasons you say. And also, frankly, because I think Nash is and NAFLD are in a funny place right now. People anticipate usually the drugs and diagnostics will develop on a common schedule. Here, the diagnostics have gotten ahead of the drugs. And because of the pandemic, some of the trials are slower than they were. So there isn't quite as rapid a flow of drug data as you might have anticipated if you were mapping out the world pre-pandemic. But a lot of great diagnostics, a lot of great modeling, and a lot of great learning really about not just the therapeutics, but everything else. So if anything, I envision us having a different set of choices to make because we're going to have a broader set of topics to choose from, which I think is really going to be fun. I agree, and I'd be happy to uh, come back on as a guest. Well, we expect you to, actually. To the audience, Jorn will be with us next week when we're bringing Jeff Lazarus to talk about uh, his paper on the comparative care models for NAFLD, something I'm really excited about. Jorn, what else do you see coming up in the next three or four months that will be important topics to cover? There's not going to be 
big data output, I believe. But, you know, we'll have new trials starting and the landscape is going to be more competitive. And one of the aspects we could discuss is, of course, and I always wondered is how do investigators decide if I have two competing trials, which patient do I put into which trial and how does that affect the trial? There's a lot of enrollment activities going on and this could also uh, be something we, we'd be able to discuss in the next month. That's a fascinating subject. And I think what goes along with this is this entire idea of pooling trials so that a set of multiple trials are, are uh, recruiting patients together. And then your question of how are patients allocated, I think really becomes even more fascinating. Also, what do we learn when mechanisms fail or when the first trial with a given mechanism fails? What, what, what are the lessons there? When do we decide to, that the mechanism just isn't worth the effort or Stephen would say the juice isn't worth the squeeze or the climb isn't worth the view or whichever one of those metaphors you want to pick versus when do we decide that what we've learned is how to do it better, not how to stop doing it? Yeah, that's exactly the point. And it might even be more complex or it might not fit the strategy of the company. Remember the Alda Furman uh, discussion we had here? You got to look at each trial separately. Some have transitioned between companies and this could be a barrier. And then the question is, is this the right population? Maybe there are signs with regards to efficacy or safety and interim analyses. I, I think you got to go one by one and decide what's the real. You can learn from every single one of them. We'll come back to the Nash uh, Therapeutics graveyard, trying to decipher what, what brings us forward by looking at things that have uh, stopped. We're then going to map the graveyard into sections huh? based on exactly why it is the trial died. I like it. So Ian, what would you like to see us do more of or differently, or would you like to engage in with us over the next year? So one of the things that I, I sort of not miss, but I think might be, be quite good would be to, to try and get a bit more debate. There are good conversations but um, some of the views are quite similar. So there's often quite a lot of sort of collegiality and, oh, yes, I think that too. And the, the, the field is is uncertain still. We still don't know what the best way to do lots of the things that we need to do. The evidence is shifting in a good way. It's being consolidated and it's gradually drifting down. But on the, the easel episode or the wrap-up session when we were talking about non-invasive testing, we were sort of getting to a point where, where we might actually be able to say, well, I think we should just stick to one non-invasive test now. No, I think we've got enough evidence for whichever one that it is. But there wouldn't, you know, there, inevitably there would be a range of views expressed around that, and I think discussions like that would actually be quite valuable to try and encourage people off the fence to try and. It's a difficult forum in which to do that, but I think people off off the fence and really expressing their views and, and opinions would be would be really good if it was possible to do that. So we're going to have to find all the bold people. Yes. In fact, we were just talking with Jorn and about about the episodes that are Jorn and Vlad, which Louise likened to being a tennis match because they've got different styles of play and you wind up in those conversations. Yeah, uh, I, I actually like that idea quite a lot. Not everybody is willing to engage it. Okay. There are some folks who are willing to get out on a limb, and there are some folks who are a little more politic and a little more careful. So without going into who is who or who plays which role, we probably need to sort that out. This is something I would like to see this coming year is, uh, you know, we have uh, guests that are not NASH experts, that are actually primary care physicians, endocrinologists, and we hear their perspective on uh, NAFLD and its impact in their practice and what they think. And maybe we can have one guest who is an expert in NAFLD and then hear from different groups. I think you'd be surprised, Roger, but NAFLD is affecting every specialty. I mean, I visit offices that are podiatry because they have tons of diabetics. I visit offices that do sleep medicine, obstructive sleep apnea, cardiology, endocrinology, oncology, because the presence of NAFLD may affect chemotherapy 
therapy and how you know your liver can handle therapeutic agents that are needed for cancer treatment. So almost every specialty could be affected by NAFLD. And it'll be nice to hear what they think and how they evaluate for it or if they find it incidentally, what do they do about it? Do they actually tell the patients, don't worry, you may have a little bit of fatty liver? I would love to have these conversations and hear from them. We need to educate ourselves on what they do and what they think. And therefore, how to help us. So for those of you who are listening, one of the things you might have figured out in the last half hour is that Naeem is something of an idea fountain, and they're usually great ideas. Um, You know, uh, seriously, I I value our conversations because you come up with so much stuff like this, and I do some of it, but I think about all of it, and then the question is how to fit it in. But we can talk about that offline. Section 5, Bringing Value. It is really an honor to be a part of this discussion. So often people think that patients or patient advocates wouldn't have anything to bring to a conversation that's about the strategic priorities or investment or the business of drug development. I remember years ago when I was a chair of the board of an organization and I had asked for a certain level of partnership with a medical society and they deliberated for a very long period of time, several weeks, and they came back and they told me that no, no, because patients would be too upset to learn that their doctors had different opinions. I was like, it's no secret to us. And so to be included as a peer, as an equal partner, as an equal voice for my lived experience, my professional experience, and all the parts that make me a patient and a patient advocate and the leader of a patient advocacy organization, I really want to thank you. And I want to thank all of the other participants in the podcast for welcoming me and my perspectives and not pulling their punches as well. So that's why this is one of the things that I make time to do. I think it's important to this space. I think it's also important in shaping people's perceptions about what a patient advocate is and the expertise that we bring and where we belong. And that's with the seat at the table, just like everyone else. One thing the podcast has been for me is a platform to exchange and share ideas and discuss with peers, but there hasn't been an opportunity to do so during conferences. So I think for me, this has really been a tremendous experience with you hosting so many interesting people, being able to engage in those discussions. And and that from my side, being able to say what I think and and hear what others think is the biggest uh, advantage of this podcast. Some of our most highly rated conference podcasts have been the ones that have had you and Vlad together. And I don't know that Vlad is going to make it for the the 20K celebration hasn't responded yet. But Louise, what do you think it is about the dynamic between those two folks that uh, attract so much attention or listenership? When I listen, when both of them are around, they come from slightly different aspects. And therefore, it's like tennis. You have a great conversation and somebody will put a top spin on something and the next person will use a lob. So the actual debate between both Jean and Vlad is always interesting. Even with a common agreement, somebody will put something different into the mix that actually is thought-provoking and may take you in a different direction. I have to also confess that I'm a big fan of counterintuitivity. You've brought a different perspective to the podcast. You look at different data and you look at it from a different angle. I think that's been extraordinarily helpful, most notably on the question of people who die with NAFLD, what they actually succumb to. The paper from, was it Easel that suggested that, in fact, the leading cause of death was liver disease and the cardiovascular is highly overrated. And then the subsequent different way you looked at that data was one of my five or six favorite things we've done on the entire podcast, frankly. In all the- Grateful to be of service in that case. I think it's important that we remember the whole patient. And one of the themes that I think has gradually built during the last 18 months of the podcast is that wider recognition of the metabolic phenotype and the importance of trying to address the whole of the patient, not just the liver disease 
specifically. I absolutely totally agree with Ian on that. And we had a conversation, Ian, with Donna Cryer as part of this earlier. And we were looking at the different ways that people look at their behaviour, whether it's from a wellness aspect or from a medical aspect, and looking at why we as medical nursing and physicians take a more parental role. And the argument being, it's about the evidence. As Donna said, the evidence is designed and been formulated by scientists who are asking their own questions. None of these are driven. The questions that we answer aren't driven by the patients. They're driven by our own scientific investigation. And she would put forward, therefore, that they need to be driving the research questions and we need to be answering their specific questions. And I think you certainly bring that holistic approach in some of the evidence that you've done. For me, that's what the podcast's about. It's about challenging our own stereotypes, bringing in something else that may be a missing link in that puzzle and pie because the phenotypes are just so varied. So that's what I've really enjoyed. Section 6. A Close from the Surfers. If we think about what all we've accomplished, it's significant. And where we're headed, I think, is worth a discussion as well because... I just came up from talking to a 61-year-old Hispanic lady downstairs who is screening for a NASH cirrhotic trial. And we see this all the time, but my comments to her were, how did you get to me? And did you know you had liver disease for years and years and years prior to being told you had cirrhosis? And her comment to me was, Dr. Harrison, I have been told I've had intermittently elevated liver chemistry tests for decades, and nobody did anything about it. And finally, one day, I'm having a colonoscopy. I'm being seen for just a routine colonoscopy. And while I'm in the pre-op area, my gastroenterologist comes in and says, how are you doing? And I mentioned that I'm having some upper abdominal discomfort. And he says, well, since I'm doing your colonoscopy, why don't I just do an upper endoscopy on you as well? And for a gastroenterologist, we call that a rotisserie. You know, we basically do the colon, spin you around, do the upper. And, you know, we're there, you're sedated, let's just take a look. But she says, after I recovered, he came out and told me that I had these dilated veins in my esophagus that he called varices and that I needed to go get a fiber scan done and that there was concern I might have liver disease. And that's how I was diagnosed. And it's not that I didn't have it all along. It's just nobody worked me up. And, And I made the comment to her. I said, you know what? That's how most people present. Most people, if you read the literature, present in the ER with decompensating cirrhosis. And you obviously were picked up before you made it that far along. But part of this is a disease state awareness issue. And she's like, you have got to get this word out. How can I help you? What do we need to do to deliver this message at the grassroots patient level so that we can become advocates for our own health? You know, it got me thinking about our podcast and how can we deliver a message that's geared and designed directly to patients? And I think that may be something we think about in moving forward. A lot of what we're exploring now are exactly what kinds of education beyond what's in this weekly podcast do we want to deliver and to whom? For what happened to your patient to happen, all kinds of things that should have happened before that didn't happen. Somebody was reading the uh, elevated liver enzyme tests and shrugging them off for whatever reason, which means either they didn't care or they didn't know how to evaluate further or both. She didn't have a source of information that she could attach readily to tell her about any of that. And whoever was paying for her health insurance never looked at those tests and flagged. So frankly, the challenge is going to be to educate patients, but really to work with the whole system, figure out what do people have to know for this to get better? And then what kind of tools can we create to help that happen? 
happen. So you see, we were talking to Ian Rowe a little while ago, and a lot of his work goes back to that idea about how are people really going to use the tools they're given? Because, well, if I tell you do an ELF before a fiber scan, it really doesn't matter because if I don't believe the ELF, I'm going to do the fiber scan anyway. And that's going to happen so often, why don't I just go straight to fiber scan? So I think we have a ton of really work to do to educate and to create different environments where people can learn what they need to know. I think we're lucky. We've got, you know, we've got good friends. We've got Donna. We've got lots of things we can do with GLI. And uh, ideally, we'll have some companies that are interested in working with us on this. I, I agree with you. We've got, it's a long runway out ahead. Hey, Stephen, how will we know if we've succeeded in the next year? I think we, we've already succeeded. And I, I think success is really just defined by uh, the fact that we still have more and more people downloading and listening to our podcast and more and more countries are adding to that list every week or so. I guess success moving forward is really defined by that continued listener pool of folks. And how do we expand that? How do we reach more people? I think that's a job that the four of us need to focus on. I I think that's fair. I would add one more thought to it. There's a lot more information in this space right now than there was a year ago, and that's even with COVID having slowed down the rate at which clinical trial results come out. The information about everything other than clinical trials, diagnostics, patient treatment, et cetera, will continue to expand rapidly, and the clinical trial data will start ballooning again. I think some of that will wind up getting picked up in listenership, but it might also create a few more ways to get information to people, because as information explodes, not everybody needs to hear all the same things. So I agree with you. I think the single best question is going to be how many folks are listening to things that we're putting out. It just might wind up being more than one of them. Name Alkuri. We can also have academic people that are top-notch in the field, you know, like endocrinologists. Fantastic. I think it's a great idea. So, Naeem, thank you so much. Louise, thanks for the whole day. Tomorrow, enjoy your trip. Naeem, stay cool to your kids. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bye-bye now, guys. Donna Cryer. Donna will be back with us next month where we're going to be talking about uh, patient-focused drug development and what that means in the context of NASH. Now, the date for the drug development meeting is? November 4th, 2021. We'll provide more information on the recording when it comes out, but I can tell you if you're listening to this, we're going to make an aggressive effort to get as large an audience live as possible so people can come in and ask their questions and can actually engage the conversation. Jörn Schottenberg. Because this is the first time I am on with Louise after the completion of the European Cup, the English team didn't fail. They just postponed their success. I think it was a great team and a great tournament, Louise. And uh, I hope to see them back in the World Championship right on top there. From a personal note, it was disappointing in the end. But actually, I think the tactics were wrong. You've got the fastest wingers and things like that. And we put them on two minutes before the end. But it's a shame. But uh, football will come home someday. And that is such a parody on what a humor take out of ourselves. It's- Jorn, thanks for joining us. And thanks for your congratulations. And I'll, we'll see you next week. Thanks, Roger. Looking forward to talk to you again. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Ian Rowe. Thank you very much for having me. It's a highlight of my Monday evening when it's when it's my turn to do the podcast. So I've really enjoyed it. And it's personally been been really good fun. But it's also that I've got to meet people that I wouldn't otherwise have met. And despite being in the UK, I've never actually met Louise before I did the, the podcast. And that's, that's been terrific. So, okay, so this is my closing note. The first time I talked with you about the podcast, your comment was, and you hadn't been on yet, that you really enjoyed hearing these global people, the KOLs talk, because unless you could somehow footstop Quentin Anstey at a meeting, you never got to hear what the global KOLs thought. I did mention that on air the first time you went on with Quentin, but trust me, it was stuck right behind my brain the entire podcast. There will be no business section this week. In its place, a closing comment from Roger. So there you have it. 16 months and about 50 minutes of summary. One final note. I want to thank all the people in the fatty liver community who've welcomed me and supported our efforts to build this podcast. If I start thanking people, I'm sure I'll forget someone. 
But I would be remiss not to thank Stephen and Louise who keep this thing moving every week. Yasmin Rahimi and Peter Traber, our former colleagues without whom we could never have started. Donna Cryer, who inspires me as much as anyone I've ever met in my life and who really is the fourth surfer, even if she's not here weekly anymore. The folks at Sonic Insights, Echo Sense of Madrigal, who sponsored episodes. Tony Villiotti at Nash Knowledge and Wayne Eskridge at the Fatty Liver Foundation, who have helped in numerous ways and whose support I've felt since the beginning. And then the people who have joined us multiple times on this podcast. Naeem Ian, Yorn, Mazanuridin, Nala Domalik, Michael Charlton, Sunil Hasmain, Chris Cowdley, Vlad Ratziu, Mary Ranella, and Andrew Scott. Magic Mike Wilson takes sloppy recordings every week and makes them sound good. Real good. And Eric Rounds and Palatea Lay have provided invaluable support in social media and backup from the beginning. I owe you folks forever. Finally, and most of all, I want to thank you, our listeners and downloaders, who write LinkedIn notes and text messages and emails and who in a thousand little ways reinforce that this is a thing worth doing. When we started, a close friend told me that 12 episodes worth of content is easy, but after that it gets tough. With your ideas and energy behind us, the first 84 have been a breeze, and the 60 we plan over the next 12 months should be even better. So, until next week, stay safe, surf on, we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye now.